Her Talks, a conversation on why women's health matters now, presented by Her Health EQ. My name is Greta Mauck. I'm the content developer for Her Health EQ, a global nonprofit focused on deploying medical equipment to improve women's health in underserved regions worldwide. At Her Health EQ, we believe that women are the cornerstone of the family unit and communities at large. And when we give women in under-resourced geographies the tools they need to survive and thrive, the benefits clearly extend to their children, families, and nations as a whole. Her Talks is our quarterly panel with innovators, researchers, healthcare professionals, philanthropy experts, and more, where we discuss how we can use our strengths to achieve women's health equity. The episode you're about to hear was our sixth Her Talks panel, which originally aired on February 2nd, 2022. In this episode of Her Talks, we discuss the current state of women's health. Panelists first discuss what each of their companies are doing to further women's health equity efforts. Then they break down women's health statistics and advocate for women-inclusive policies in the workplace and city planning. Lastly, they answer questions about trends in women's health efforts. This episode is a conversation between three experts, Dr. Daniel Robinson, Dr. Claudia Yanton, and Megan Mills. Our CEO, Marissa Fayer, moderated this discussion. Dr. Danielle Robinson is the Head of Community Engagement and Partnerships at Diageo, a global leader in beers and spirits. She has 28 years of experience in human resources and corporate relations and a PhD in public administration. Dr. Robinson also serves on the board at Norwalk Hospital. Dr. Claudia Yanton is the Senior Specialist of Maternal and Child Health at Catholic Medical Mission Board, an international NGO providing long-term community-based medical and developmental aid to communities affected by poverty in Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean. Dr. Yantin is also a medical doctor with over 17 years of experience focused on public health, specifically as it relates to reproduction, maternal and child health, nutrition, community-based rehabilitation, and disability. Megan Mills is the global strategy and operations leader of the government and private sector at EY, a consulting company focused on data and technology. She's been working at EY for 22 years. All of their social media accounts and anything you hear in this panel, including a transcript, will be available in the show notes at www.herhealtheq.org slash her-talks. I am so excited to share with you Volume 6 of Her Talks, The State of Women's Health. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, we're excited to have you. Happy uh, 2-22-22. It's a big day. It's supposed to be great energy, and we're excited to have that actually here. Um, so welcome to um, Her Talks. Um, it's actually, this is our sixth one and we're really excited about it. It's our state of women's health. So, um, the state of women and women's health is a really hot topic always. And we're really, um, it's especially timely as next week starts International Women's Month. And on the 8th of March, we're celebrating International Women's Day. And so for us at Her Health EQ and so many people around the world, the current and future state of women is always on our minds. And women are the backbone of society in, in every country and region and without their health, they're not able to contribute to the community, their family and society. So even if you're not in healthcare, women health, women's health affects every manner of life. And um, whether you're in a spirits company or a global consulting firm, firm or a women's focused nonprofit, women are completely integral for the advancement of society and it's really important um, that we focus on it. Um, I am Marissa Fayer, the CEO of Her Health EQ, and I'm honored to moderate this episode of Her Talks, uh, which is a discussion series where we bring together different minds and industries and to talk about a specific chosen topic this, uh, this month is uh, women's health and so um, and the state of women's health. And, um, you know, it's really near and dear to Her Health EQ's mission of providing healthcare equipment to developing countries with a focus on women's health, non-communicable diseases, because they can all be detected, prevented, and treated 
with the equipment if these developing countries and, and the doctors working in them have the equipment. So I'm completely humbled and honored to be joined by these incredible panelists. I'm gonna let them briefly um, introduce themselves and then we're gonna jump into the discussion. Um, it's gonna be an incredible discussion. Uh, I'm gonna do my best to moderate it. I can let this discussion go for hours, but I'll be super mindful of everybody's time. So um, introductions and a quick about you. Um, Danielle, who is the head of corporate responsibility at Diageo, if you wanted to start. Then we'll move on to Claudia, who's a senior specialist of um, maternal health and child care at Catholic Medical Mission Board. And then we're going to move on to Megan, who's a strategy and operations leader of government and public, um, and public sector at Ernst & Young EY. So Danielle, let's start with you. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Danielle Robinson, again, head of corporate responsibility for Diageo. I also sit on the board of Norwalk Community Hospital um, here in Norwalk, Connecticut. I've been on that board for about five years and just have a very um, keen interest in human health, um, health in disparate communities, multicultural communities, as well as women's health. So thank you so much for having me here today. Hi, I'm Claudia Janten, a medical doctor from Colombia. I work as a senior maternal specialist at CMMB and have the opportunity to work with the five countries where we have our portfolios, Zambia, South Sudan, Kenya, Haiti, and Peru. And uh, to fulfill the mission, I am really passionate for the organization mission that is improves the life of women and children with sustainable solutions. Hi, I'm Megan Mills. I am the head of strategy and operations for EY's global government and public sector business. Um, and um, I also spend part of my time at EY focused on our future cities agenda, as well as on our sustainability program for governments. Passionate about this topic, um, focused on building resilient and sustainable communities through the lens of environmental justice, anti-racism, and ensuring that women have, um, that, that we're building equitable, equitable communities as well with a focus on um, including women and the most vulnerable populations into those conversations. No, that's great ladies. Thank you so much. And at any time, um, someone in the audience has a question or a comment, feel free to write that into the chat. Um, and we're gonna to try to answer everything that we possibly can. Um, just as a reminder, if you are not one of the speakers, just if you can try to put yourself on mute or I'll go ahead and mute you in a second. So um, in our pre-chat, there were so many things that came up and there was a few similar ones that we were kind of talking amongst ourselves about and that we're all working and very passionate about. So community support, global companies supporting women and CSR and ESG programs that are focused on healthcare for all people were some of the things that came up. So Megan, um, let me start with you. You mentioned um, in our pre-chat and also just now that you know some of the work that you've been doing um, in relation to health and government programs, the COVID response and human services um, that better all people. And so can you tell us um, the, some of the important items you've been working on that we all should really know about and, and, and how in the context of women is this important? So um, I'm super proud to be representing EY and the Hold on, Megan, you muted for some reason. Oh, can you hear Sorry. me now? <laughs> Sorry about that. I, am. Um, I was just saying, I'm, I'm really proud to be representing EY, especially our government um, 
uh, professionals who are working with government agencies, not-for-profits, international development partners um, to address some of the biggest issues of our time. Um, and I would put the, the work that we're doing specifically related to gender into three different buckets. One is around health and safety for women. Um, one is around workforce development and ensuring that women-owned businesses are getting the right training programs, the right investments and business opportunities to grow. And the third is around the UN Sustainable Development Goals, seeing more and more um, uh, states and other um, organizations looking to benchmark themselves around those Sustainable Development Goals. So in the first area around health and safety, and a, and a lot of these um, services that we're providing take a technology lens, especially around data analytics. How can we use the data that we have to keep people, women in particular, and children especially, safe um, using predictive analytics, data analytics. But we've been hired by um, government agencies and not-for-profits to provide diagnostics and frameworks around um, one particular program was gender-based violence in the workplace and just out in general in urban areas. And so using data, using benchmarks of places where there's a lot of gender-based violence and places where there's less gender-based violence, providing training materials, providing benchmark data to help those organizations or those places where there's more gender-based violence to, to implement and execute programs to keep women safe. Another um, engagement that we had was in India um, around a safe city program in one of the, the cities there. And we were um, engaged to provide tech consulting services, again, using data. We were working with the city to set up surveillance command center using data analytics, using prevent, um, predictive analytics to understand where in the city were the most incidents of violence and how could we, um, how could the city set up programs to keep women safe in those areas. There was a whole awareness campaign around communication so that women understood that this was happening, so that other citizens and residents understood that this was happening. And we worked very closely around a police response system. So implementing that police response so that there was faster response time and also more awareness of those areas that were really unsafe um, for women in general. So that engagement is still ongoing, but there are KPIs and metrics that we're using to measure to help ensure that the programs that we, um, we uh, provided benchmarks to and the KPIs that they're actually implementing them and that they're having the results that they um, wanted the return on that investment long-term. The second area is around workforce development. So over the last two years in particular, the workforce, um, how we work, where we work, the type of work that we're doing has changed based on COVID. And I would say that um, women have been affected even more from an education perspective, from an opportunity perspective. In many places where women were having new opportunities in the workforce were being pulled back because of other family um, obligations or home obligations perhaps that maybe took them off of that career track. But we are seeing um, governments and international development partners in particular looking to invest in women-owned businesses, looking to um, invest in digital technology skills, in um, training, business management training programs, that will help those businesses to have different opportunities, better opportunities to grow um, that they may not have had previously. So we did an engagement in Central Europe with the um, 
European Bank for Reconstruction, they were investing specifically in women-owned businesses, making sure that they had access to training programs and mentorship programs around business management and digital technology. And the third area that I mentioned is around benchmarking UN Sustainable Development Goals. And many of those are directly related to issues that impact women um, at higher rates than, than men around poverty, health and well-being, education, and hunger specifically. And so we've been hired by a couple of states in India where they were looking um, to understand how they ranked against those SDGs. Um, I think there were some, some surprises, but it's a very honest and very um, good conversation for these states to have, to think about how can they make the right investments? What kind of programs should they be implementing and executing? And so we were monitoring and measuring things like access to bathrooms in, in schools, girls' bathrooms in schools, um, anemia levels in pregnant women, and other health and safety and just overall well-being um, metrics, measuring those and then creating a dashboard um, that the government could use to monitor itself to see how those programs are progressing over time. And that is a program that we're looking to roll out um, globally with other states. And it's something that even here in, you know, I think people um, for better or worse think of kind of these things are happening over there maybe in developing regions. But we've now um, seen a couple of states in the US actually looking to measure themselves against the SDGs. I think coming out of COP26, the big climate event that happened in Glasgow back in November, you know, cities and um, government leaders came back with a renewed sense of the SDGs of how can we build more resilient, sustainable communities. And that those are, that is one lens that you can use around the SDGs to try to, um, put programs in place to eradicate poverty, to um, eliminate hunger, to educate girls and women at a higher rate. So I'll stop there. I wanna hear from the other um, panelists, but those are some of the things that UI is focused on. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much. Um, Danielle, let me, let me jump to you now. And and because I always kind of find this interesting, like Diageo is a spirits company, which obviously is not traditionally focused on women or, you know, or a healthcare company. So, you know, how are you focused on making it a priority um, at the company? And I know you have the Jane Walmer brand um, and, and, you know, but as a company in our pre-discussions, like this is really important for you and for the focus and the, for the work that you're focused on internally um, at Diageo. So I'd love to kind of hear, uh, I think everybody would love to hear kind of um, kind of what you're working on and, and why it's so important for, for women and for the health of women. Uh, yeah, so women are important for everyone. <laughs> I mean, we're at half of the population. Um, they are the main buyer in the home. So anybody that is a CPG or consumer brand should be concerned about women. Um, so yes, we're concerned about women. 47% um, of our workforce in North America is female. Um, so not just about our consumer, their consumers as well, but also about our workforce and our employees. So we have a number of different programs that we do. One of the global programs that I lead is called Learning Skills for Life. Uh, and Learning Skills for Life is a program where we go into multicultural and uh, underemployed communities of color and low employment with women. Um, it's a global program. We probably have close to 150,000 graduates globally. 
about 800 here in North America. Um, and we um, train them in hospitality, either hospitality service or bartending. Um, and this gives um, women, um, multicultural audiences, um, a viable income very quickly. Our programs are three to four weeks here in the US and some of the other countries they are a little bit longer and more intense. Um, but we have an 89% placement rate um, with bartenders across the country. So yes, hospitality is um, part of the great resignation. Um, we're all aware of that. Um, but people are starting to venture out again, uh, places are starting to open up. And so having people that are trained to take these jobs that may have left other uh, resources of income is key. Um, we do have Jane Walker. So we do have a number of brands that target women. Bailey's is another, um, but women drink um, think, things across the portfolio now. Um, and it really is about responsible consumption with us, always has been. Um, so making sure that people drink in moderation um, and so that is a key focus of us as well. Um, and then we have a number of different internal uh, policies that I can talk a little bit about later that are focused on women as well, but employment and purchasing power is key, making sure that the woman in the house is aware of what we stand for as a, com as a company around positive consumption and moderation. So they know that they're supporting brands that support them as well. Great, thank you so much. Um, yeah, we will be getting into, I really wanna hear a lot of the, the, the programs that you've kind of created as well um, at Diageo and continue to support. Um, Claudia, I just kind of wanted to um, jump over to you. Um, you are a women's health physician and you're often working on the ground um, you know, with women in developing countries. I know you've um, recently returned from several trips. So like what kind of info and stats um, maybe that can kind of ground everybody in the discussion on, yes. on why we need to keep the focus on women and and like and and maybe some stats or information on like the health of women right now. Yeah, let's to put everything in, in, in context in general maternal health uh, have been improved a lot maternal deaths have been decreasing almost a quarter in the last 30 years so really. Some countries were able to reach the Millennium Development Goals. Megan was reaching, uh, speaking about the uh, sustainable development goals now is that we are speaking. However, to reach that target, we have to, need to move a lot and do a lot of improvement. So just to keep it in context, yeah, the average rate of in Euro European Union is eight maternal deaths per every 100,000 li uh, life of birth. If you compare some countries, even doing better like Finland or Sweden, where it's three or four for every 100,000. You compare with the US, it's 14. And in countries where CMMB works, like Sub Sudan, we are speaking about 789 deaths that we are facing there. So, really, globally, every day are around 800 women. It means if you put it in minutes, every two minutes. A woman is dying for a preventable causes that are related to pregnancy and childbirth. That's where we need to take continue taking action. The, the inequity that we are facing is so big. So that's why uh, in CMMB, we are uh, really trying to make move more to make working with the community, understand cultural sensitive, what is happening in the community, but at the same time, working in the health facilities, make that more accessible not only geographical, but also financially, because this is one of the big issues, social, uh, part of the social determinants of health. It's how the, it's the income generation and women are facing more poverty and having worse outcomes as a result of living in poverty. We also uh, want to say services that are more accessible, better equipped, something that you are doing really super important and key that equipment 
uh, are in place and the people knows how to use it. So also it's improve the quality of the services uh, and the training will be motivated and, and well-trained uh, to provide that services with cultural sensitivity as well. So that's, uh, but our, to return more in terms of terms of the data is that why is, that is part of the maternal, but also that because we need to open the umbrella. Women is not only reproductive health or during that years of life. We are before and after. So if we think in our diseases like cancer, for example, we are also seeing that more than 300,000 women are dying in 2018, for example, for cervical cancer. And 85% of them were in low and middle income countries, something that is preventable something that is a vaccine for that if we start working in early ages in life with teenagers, something that even we could screen and treat in the moment. So, but that service needs to be available. And so that is the, the importance. We need to, to continue working or make that available. So that's, that's another important uh, area to consider uh, how we, we are looking and increase the spectrum. The spectrum should be bigger in terms of how we perceive women's health. And then we go to the early, latest stages, menopause, how much we really, how many of the providers really are feel comfortable speaking about and are prepared to speaking about topics like menopause. I think uh, looking, for example, of the work that CMB is doing in HIV and, and, and the, the statistic, we face that, for example, why is so important? Because when a woman die, Mainly of the wars initially in HIV Star Wars was with orphans. It's leaving a big burden for who we continue. So really that uh, that part is critical. And when I speak about the social uh, determinants of health, there's poverty, education is also critical. For HIV, keeping girls in the school is one of the tools that we need to continue supporting, but also because women goes to the school have better chance to have a job, better payments. And women, we know, women invest in their families and their communities. They don't go and drink, and we see. So, so that's what is important because investing women is investing in the families, in the communities, and the future generations. 100% agree with you. It's, uh, it's something that at Her Health EQ we're, we're really focused on as well. And like, you know, it's, it's literally everything you just said. And you know, cervical cancer treatment. I mean, you know, what just just getting it to where it needs to be would be really just helpful. Um, and, and some of these, you know, stats are shocking. Like, you know, for for me, you know, for a lot of us in women's health, like we hear them every day, but it's still shocking every time you hear them. And um, you know, and even for people who don't hear them, like it, it is a shock, and it should be a shock because these are things that we can prevent, and you know, and we can work through. And so. Uh, thank you, Claudia. Really, uh, some of those stats are are incredible. Um, actually, dovetailing on something that um, you know Claudia was saying, Danielle, I kind of wanted to jump back to you. The really big part of women's health is is also family support, and it's you know a lot of this ancillary support. And Claudia was just talking about that as well. And um, in, you know, all of this needs to happen to support a woman in all stages of her life. And I know that you've been working on some of the uh, you know the programs at Diagro for. Um, um, you know, for your associates. And so can you tell us about some of that work that's been focused and related on maternal and paternal leave, menopause support, general family support, including elder care? Because, you know, as, as I think a lot of us or probably most of us know, obviously women's health is not just 
maternal health. It's not just one organ. So it's an entire system of support and, and help. And, um, you know, that's really important for us to kind of hear at a corporate level, maybe what, um, you know, what you've been working on and have implemented that's been supporting women. So the ASIA, I would say, is very progressive in a number of ways and policies, uh, similar to what Megan described from EY, we do align our community strategy with um, some of the SDG goals around education. Um, hospitality is one of those SDG goals as well, um, increasing um, representation, safe cities, et cetera, um, racial and um, society uh, disparities, and then good health and well-being. So many of our brands that you may know, the Crown Royals, the Johnny Walker, um, Bailey's, uh, Casamigos, Don Julio, take uh, really strong stances in local community, community issues. Um, and then we also take them internally as well. So as I said, 47% of our um, staff are female. Uh, we wanted to globally um, marry up our focus on women with our IND strategy, our inclusion and diversity strategy. So there is a component around hiring women. There is a component around um, making sure that, you know, we always say in diversity that you want to bring your whole self to work, but it's hard to do that if people aren't recognizing your whole self. So we implemented a policy uh, around menopause, which for those in the U.S., it was kind of like, what? We're doing what? Um, but globally, you know, they were really starting to have that conversation on a much more global platform. So um, we uh, implemented that from a global standpoint. So it's across our, our entire company. And it really is about getting managers to understand that women may be dealing with different things. They may be bringing different issues to work. It could be caregiver issues. Um, we have a new policy around domestic violence and domestic abuse. So if you um, are being abused or think somebody in your family is being abused or around that, um, there's protocol for that. And then we have a well-being philosophy, which I love because it really gives people the flexibility and um, opportunity to get off the hamster wheel, as I call it, uh, when they see fit, not when the company says you have a day off because it's a holiday, but because you're having a mental health day and you need to take a moment. <laughs> um, so it really is getting managers and leaders to ask, you know, at some point or any point during our team call, is everybody okay? How are you doing today? How are you feeling? Is there anything I can help you with? Um, and we have a number of resources that some of the other companies here probably do as well, EAPs, um, employee assistance programs. We have our ERGs, employer resource groups. So a number of different platforms and areas that people can go if they need assistance. That's amazing. Thank you so much. And thanks for being such a leader in, in creating a lot of these programs too and talking about it. Teamwork. Um, yep, yeah, always, always. Um, Megan, a lot of the work that you do at EY and also personally, you know, is related to community support in smart cities. And so, um, you know, both of other panelists have been talking about this too. So like, how can we design cities around women and our health that promotes both equality and community and equity? And like, how, like, I assume, obviously I'm not a smart cities person, but um, how do we create cities that are inclusive for everybody? and are, are also inclusive, you know, that are focused on women and our health and, and moving ourselves forward. Right. So it's probably no surprise to this audience that most of the products we use, the area, the space that we are in has been designed by men, with men in mind, and mostly white cisgender men. 
and cities are no different. Um, the sidewalks, right, don't often take into account, you know, they're for able-bodied people who walk around feeling very safe and secure all the time. And we are, we have seen a, um, a movement of women leaders, actually women city managers and, and mayors. Barcelona is one city, they have a, a woman mayor who really took a very strong stance on redesigning areas with women in mind. And while it seems very simple to just say, include women in the conversation, it's not always what government officials think about actually. Um, and so our Future Cities program focuses um, on, on the equity piece of it and making sure that as you're designing new transportation systems, as you're thinking about where um, health services are being provided or um, job search, you know, place job placement um, organizations might be, other human services, are they accessible to people? And do you actually understand the journey that someone who looks other than you has to take to get access to those services? And so there were studies that were done on transportation systems where they might follow, you know, that same white, hetero, cisgendered male, right? And that person never took the public bus or the public system. They walked out of their apartment, got in their car, drove to the train station, took the train to an office, and that was it. And then you follow a woman, and this woman might have a couple of children, an elderly person, and probably made, and I did this myself, 52 stops before they got the kid off to school or daycare or whatever, including you know the pharmacy, the grocery store, on and off the bus, wherever they were going. And so when you really meet people where they are and include those different voices in the conversation, you just have better outcomes, especially for the most vulnerable people who live in urban areas, which tend to be women and children, and, and in particular, women of color. And so we do have a whole program at EY that we've launched around Connected Citizen, which is bringing to the forefront the different types of citizens and residents who may be living in a different area who require services that government is providing, whether it's transportation or other um, services and understanding that journey of the citizen, their digital you know, access to, to um, an iPhone or other, other technology, mobility, transportation, jobs, and so forth. Um, and so it's really important to us that we speak with, when we speak with our clients about designing different programs and systems that they listen to the people that they're serving. And the last point I'll make is, um, and, and so technology isn't always the answer either. We think we need an app and you can do, you know, crowdsourcing and all of this stuff. But the most successful cities have actually done on the ground, going and talking to people in community centers, in sports you know, where, where kids might be on the playground, whatever it may be, at the farmer's market, whatever it may be, really understanding and getting into those issues so that you can implement programs. And from a personal perspective, I sit on a board in Newark that's focused on environmental justice and food security. And we realized that we had a major blind spot in think we thought, oh, we're doing the community, you know, all of these great things for the community and providing fresh vegetables and so forth. But sometimes there are also unintended consequences Sending a child who doesn't have a working kitchen home with food that needs to be cooked and their mother may not even know how to cook that vegetable, right, has a really bad unintended consequence mentally, emotionally, physically for that mom and her children. 
And so we've really made a concerted effort to think about our mission and vision and to think about how we engage with the community that we're trying to serve. And so it sounds very, I don't know, colloquial, but it really is about talking to people and understanding their journey. Wow. I mean, besides Barcelona, are there other cities that are doing this? Um, it's interesting. I don't have, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I was speaking with someone who runs big smart city events and they've had to obviously, you know, move into different forums. And I said, where are the cities that are being most successful in redesigning safe, green, healthy um, urban areas? And he said, the first thing is wherever there's a woman in a leadership role, that's where they're getting things done, which is also not shocking to this group, I don't think. Well, I would, I would have to say there's a few cities actually um, across the US. Um, we, we work um, with a company called, a nonprofit called the Responsible Hospitality Institute. Um, and they do safe city programs as well around um, really wrapping your arms around the community to make sure that they are safe for people to socialize because nightlife in a community is sometimes the lifeblood of the community. So, you know, if I had to pick certain cities, we probably have 23 um, uh, what we call um, night mayors or nightlife directors um, that report into a mayor's office across the U.S., some of them being New York City, for example. Um, Ariel Palace does a fantastic job um, there. Um, Washington, D.C., San Diego, um, Charleston, um, which we're getting ready to do one of our Learning Skills for Life programs in Charleston. Charleston um, had issues around the size of the streets, similar to what Megan talked about. Um, and so because of the size of the sidewalks, there was a lot of scuffles after a club closed. Sometimes it could be the, the staggering of times of when cl clubs close so that there's not so many people congregated on the street and you have more police accessibility that women feel safer. It could be lighting um, in a parking garage. It could be adding on um, additional stops or um, expanding the rail service um, and having more um, police there. So it really is thinking about you know women um, as a, a diversity audience, um, you know, baby, baby rooms. Um, you know, in restaurants or changing tables, something really, really simple um, that keeps a woman from changing a baby in her car in a parking lot that could be dangerous, where she could be in the safety of the restaurant, you know, doing that. So I think there's a, a number of different things that are happening across the U.S. at least. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, just to remind everybody, if you have any questions, put them in the chat. We have a question coming in, and we also are going to have a really fun part of uh, her talks where our panelists get to ask questions um, of each other. Uh, it kind of takes, you know, the pressure off of me, which is really nice. I still have more questions, so don't worry. But, um, you know, if anybody has any questions, put it in. We have a, one already um, from Sakura, which we're really excited about. Um, so she was saying that there's a good deal of attention on supporting women in the global south and many NGOs are serving these regions are not equipped to handle the admin and reporting side of grant making, uh, which we have for sure seen. Um, do you see, does anybody on the panel see any trends where funders and CSR programs are including kind of like back end support and software to ensure that there's um, governance and transparency or is there, is there still like a gap? Is there still a need for the support? I don't know if any of you guys kind of saw anything in there. I can leave that to Megan, but I do know that there, the charitable 
uh, partnerships that we are developing are getting a lot more creative. So people are, you know, we're trying to support what they really need, not necessarily the program or the major event, but, you know, some of that back office operational stuff that will really keep them afloat. And that we do work with a lot of international development partners, the World Bank, um, Inter-American Development Bank, the Asian Development Bank. And, you know, there definitely is that need for more governance and transparency. And that's where a lot of these programs fall down, quite frankly, the funding goes somewhere and the program is set up. Um, but, you know, that's not the interesting part, but you do have to track these things over a generation of time, right, to see the return on the investment, to see how quality of life has been improved, to see if the money actually got to the right people that needed that, that program. Um, so there is still a need for that support, and I would say those international development players, especially around ESG, tracking the environmental, social, and governance piece of it, um, that's definitely something that they're looking at. Yeah, Claudia, I bet you've probably had to deal with this quite a bit. Um, being an international organization, um, would love to kind of hear your thoughts, especially as you are a relatively large organization, um, to understand, like, do you get support from corporations on, on, on this type of reporting? Like, again, it's not really, it, it, exactly, like you said, it's not sexy. Like, it's just not. And, and, you know, but these are the things that are going to inform decisions going forward and understand if the money and the support has made an impact. Um, I know what we do is we're very transparent. Like we report actual numbers of patients that have been treated. Um, we don't lump in the, you know, five to seven members of the family um, to inflate numbers. Like we're very concrete on that. So I just very, you know, Claudia, you're on the ground. You see, you probably have to do all of this work. Like <laughs> what have you seen? What I, I could see that really we work more with the government and multilaterals um, or some also foundations as well. But uh, yes, we report what is possible. Uh, when I say that is the indicators, usually the government already established what you should be reported. So of course we do under that. However, also it's a challenge sometimes to report at is no, no, or everything is so when I say that is to find at the level that maybe we will want to track. So I will add that element as well, that no always is, um, is the ideal world sometimes when you are sitting in New York, but the reality, no, honestly, uh, but the reality for the people on the ground to collect that kind of indicator that sometimes is required is harder. Yeah, we're seeing that too. Uh, absolutely. We had another great question that came in uh, from Rachel Penner. So she's interested to understand and to know what the, what all of the panelists um, see as the most pressing issue in health and well-being for the next generation of women. So it's up for all three of you guys. I would like to start with that. Um, why? Because I think with COVID, we have had huge lesson learned and COVID bring us an element to show how mental health is so critical. And I think we are facing that and it's something that have uh, put a lot in imprint and, and, and footprint in, in, in us and, and the future generation when I say that, how much it will be that, that for them. So mental health and mental health also keep in mind that the, the, gen, the population are going older. We are, and women are living longer than men. So also that part is how we are preparing for all that that is related with mental health, we are see, we'll see more depression, more anxiety, how much we are seeing also more Alzheimer's as well, how we are preparing to deal with all that. As uh, I would say also as from providers, how the system is ready for that. I think uh, 
for uh, as a result of COVID that put that finally in a, in a place, in a position where we all of us feel more aware. Hopefully, many of us will feel more aware of mental health. I will put that as a one. But also the non-communicable diseases will be another big element to continue. So we are having a better improvement in infections, but so the cardiovascular, the oncology issues will start taking place. So I think in that two areas, I will think that the, the future to start and how we could prevent, no, it's the style of life, how much we could do in prevention. It's not just that, but all that we could do currently to educate better our young generations, nutrition, all that lifestyles that could support uh, to prevent. I agree with Claudia. I think mental health is definitely going to be a major issue for women, um, but especially women of color um, as well as men of color uh, and, and Caucasian men as well. I think it's across the board to, to your point around COVID, um, but especially around um, the great uh, resignation has affected women um, disparately across the nation, especially in our cities from childcare issues. I mean, people forget how long the the daycares were closed <laughs> um, and some never reopened. So, you know, um, you had a system in place and all of a sudden now you're going back to work, but you have no system. So um, I think it's gonna be a really important issue for women to um, give up our superwoman cape, so to speak, <laughs> um, and ask for more help when we need it. Um, I've really, I've relinquished my cape um, at the beginning of the year. Um, people still keep throwing it back on my back and I keep throwing it back off. <laughs> they look at women as the end-all be-all and we control a lot of things in our, especially domestically in our homes and our personal lives and with our families, but we, we have to spread the wealth. But I think mental health is key. So I, I would agree that mental health is also um, probably the most pressing issue. I also think um, with that, women... Um, you know, the, the cape that Danielle mentioned, it's just, that's the way some of these systems have been set up, right? Women do the, um, the invisible work in the offices. Well, we're not in the offices anymore and no one really misses any of those things that we used to do, I don't think. And so if we took a step back and leaders, people who are in positions of power and had the ability to shift, to provide the right resources, to make sure that the right people um, are at the table, whatever that may be, um, it's shifting the way we've always done things to a new way of living and the, and the way that the expectations that we as women have for our lives and access to services and education and knowledge and equal pay. And, you know, some of these things that it's just people just accept them like, oh, well, it's the way that it is. Well, I would say it doesn't have to be that way. anymore. Great. And, you know, it's, it's also as basic, like, just go get your checkup, <laughs> you know, go get your checkup, go get your mammogram, go get your annual, um, you know, pap smear, go get these things because um, that's, 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 you know, how we can do it. and prioritizing that as well, I think is incredibly important. Um, so, oh, we just had another question come in. I, I'm, I'm excited about this. <laughs> um, uh, what the panelists might uh, have learned about remote learning and remote training during the pandemic um, and this is from Meg at Matternova. And, um, you know, speeds of commercialization and medical devices um, have really focused on women in SDG3. So, um, you know, everyone wants to continue with these, you know, these micro trainings and pre and post trainings. Um, 
you know, how, how can we do this? And, and maybe Claudia, this might be something for you as you're seeing a lot of innovations out in the field come out. And um, I know it's something that we're seeing kind of as well, like there's always new technology, there's always new training. We're trying to do it as fast as possible. There's so many new changes coming out. Like, like what do you grab onto? Um, or do you kind of stick with the tried and true? Um, I know we're all really focused on every, everybody's kind of focused on SDG three, um, especially the women's health side of things. So um, for any of you, you ladies, like, uh, I, okay, I will, yeah, I'll go to start. Uh, I think one of the great, and I think one of the secrets of CMMB is the community health workers, how we do. I think when I said that is because the, the part of technology have been help us to change a lot and, and, and adapt and be flexible to be, be able to work with mothers to continue educating or doing um, the telemedicine consultation. However, it was as a result of we have a really a strong um, relation and links with the family that they know. Because if you, it's so, when I said that is because I compare women who were working with, we were, were working with them previously to the pandemic, they were more likely to follow, for example, the antenatal care service, even if it was, it was uh, virtual, compared to the group of women that were completely new and they started the system virtually. It was less, the, the call was less. So technology helped us to continue. And definitely I appreciate that in rural areas and places uh, where uh, the, the technology is, is also when I say that mobile phones using WhatsApp soon, it also was applies to the people need to learn. Our community workers were learning on that. So it was, it facilitates a lot to continue having that um, education, communication with, with the families and, and track on that. But it was because previously we have a relation. I think it's, that helps immediately, immediately that part. In terms of, um, New technologies as, uh, as well, uh, in addition, is uh, I would say that it will help, it was to be more creative in the way that how we communicate and be more effective. That's what I, I, I see that, uh, particularly in the community world. Okay, Danielle, Megan, have you seen this on the corporate side um, as far as like all of these tools helping? I mean, I know, you know, e-health has been all the rage. Um, like, what have you guys been seeing on a corporate level? I think um, that gives people more opportunity that have relocated perhaps um, during uh, the pandemic to other areas of the of the U.S. that we can reach them in a quicker way. We call them snack bites. So sometimes it's like a 15, 20 minute Zoom on a topic. Um, so people can pop in really quickly. It's not like the full 45 minutes or an hour, but they can get um, something really, really quick. Um, and we get a lot of people on those, especially if we serve cocktails <laughs> or we encourage people to have a cocktail during it. If you do it at like, you know, four, four thirty, um, you know, at the end of the day, people can kind of grasp onto something or during lunchtime. So, um, I have seen some success in that. I do think that people have zoom fatigue, so that's why we kind of cut them down a little bit. So it's in more bite-sized portions. Great. Agreed. Um, uh, we're getting to the end here, but do any of the panelists have questions for each other? Take the pressure off me. No, I think uh, my question for Claudia um, was just a little bit more about the, you know, one of, my, one of the areas that I'm interested in is the high um, death of Black females in childbirth. I think people think, um, as Megan said earlier, that it's happened somewhere else in the world and not happening here in the U.S. Um, do you see... 
have you been following or is that part of your work tracking those trends um, here in the US? And is there anything that you can share with the audience around that? I am tracking, but we don't work in the US just as a personal also interest of that to see that level of inequality. And yes, two, three times women of color have higher risk to die as a result of pregnancy complication compared to a white woman. Mm -hmm. uh, and when we come back again to look at why is that social determinants, Do we, they have access, is health insurance available, where they are live, what is the quality of services? And, and, and I also will add an element that I don't know how plays here, but sometimes it's also that this balance of how takes the decision at home and when, and who have the income to even pay transportation or who decides when you should go. Maybe that kind of even things that are, are there, it's sadly uh, disproportionately affected uh, women of colors, but also if we look at even in subgroup of populations, we also find that women who are just going out from the US and other places, refugees, women who have disabilities, even goes more complicated uh, the situation for them. But sadly, it's when they, I refer to the statistic, if we compare US, for example, with Europe for maternity debt, we have the, no, a higher number here is 15 compared to five that Sweden could have at three or four. Mm. So even if we speak that we are in a country that is high, high-income country is still a gap and it's still a gap even in New York if you compare the, the numbers how is the situation in the Bronx compared to Manhattan is okay. another world so mm -hmm. we don't need to be so far away to see that the, the disparity and how the social determinants are affect women disproportionately as well among among the, the group of women I mean we saw that in COVID as well I mean you know exactly I think it was exasperated in COVID and you know the light was shined uh, even brighter on the issue that people have been ignoring for years. Exactly. And it just became apparent to so many people who I think, you know, maybe weren't focused on it as much. Mm -hmm. um, thank you, Claudia. Questions? Yeah, thank you, Claudia. Do you guys, any other questions? Um, otherwise, we'll be, we can, you know, start to wrap. Well, great. We'll be super. Um, I, I have one. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I have Claudia, one. Go, <laughs> and I also for Vernel, yes. Because I quite interesting to see is super different. That, that achievement to have maternity leave, paternity leave for uh, six months in the organization, could you tell what were the steps that you were able to do it? Because this is not the reality for many, in many places in this country or outside, even many other countries. I think it was really about making sure that we were providing e equal access and equal treatment across the globe. So, you know, um, historically um, and for years, the European uh, nations have had a year of maternity leave. Uh, and here it was um, six to eight weeks, uh, depending on what type of pregnancy you had, which really shouldn't make a difference. You still need to bond with your baby. And it was even more different uh, for people who adopted or nothing. Um, and so we really wanted um, to even the, the field a bit um, and give people and mothers and fathers a chance to bond with their children. So we um, instituted paternity leave, uh, I wanna say four or three, four years ago. And then we extended our maternity and paternity leave to six months last year, just because, you know, it wasn't fair. Um, you know, I would love to have a year, but you know, baby steps, right? Um, and we find a lot of men are really taking advantage of it, which I find phenomenal um, and able to have that time to bond with their children. So to have husband and wife uh, home to bond with the child during that six month period is, you know, is a godsend, I think. And I think every company should have that. Six weeks is just not enough. I mean, 
you just barely getting your feet wet six months. Um, and, and that bonding is very, very important, especially for those women um, of us that are uh, senior executives and travel so much. I mean, you just can't get back onto that, that hamster wheel so quickly after giving birth, it's not fair. Great, Megan, did you have something? I saw you come up and you, so I wanted to see. I was just gonna say, we've even gone so far, there's even leaves around um, other maternal health issues, um, miscarriages, different types. So taking into account different types of families, I think we even have leave if you adopt a pet, right? And so taking into account that not everyone is, you know, a man and a woman having a child. Um, there are single parents, there are people going through fertility issues, fertility challenges. And so um, we've taken into account a much more inclusive view around family planning and resources that are available and leave that's available. And we've also increased um, maternity, maternity leave and paternity leave. And it's great to see fathers taking that time as well. That's great. Um, thank you, everybody. Um, so I just want to say thank you to the panelists. It sounds like the state of women health is evolving, changing, still not the best it could be. Um, but there's room for improvement. Obviously, we've made some progress, but still need to continue. Um, thank you to, to Danielle, to Claudia, to Megan. We are so, so happy to have um, you guys. And I think you guys <laughs> kind of said it all. Uh, we can probably can continue this discussion for a really long time. Um, our our pre-chat lasted uh, well over a lot of time, so uh, we'll try to be mindful here. Um, I just wanted to say, please join us on March 22nd, which is exactly one month from right now, for our next Her Talks. And we're going to be discussing what we heard or maybe didn't hear at International Women's Day discussions and kind of what's next for women's health. We already have a great lineup of speakers um, for you and can't wait to have you join us. We'll be sending out news to everybody soon. And um, obviously until then, please reach out to any of us. Um, I'm sure we'd all love to hear from you. I know that personally I, I would. And um, as part of this discussion, if there's anything you would like to know, if there's anything that anybody would like to discuss with Her Healthy Q or ways to support um, you know, our work for the betterment of women's health, please reach out to me or our team. And I just wanted to say, um, you know, in advance, um, happy almost International Women's Month and Day. And honestly, thank you all for being here. It's, um, it's an honor. It's exciting for us. Um, we love having these really, really, really fun and authentic chats. So um, happy uh, 2-2-22. And in, in, it was 2-22 on the East Coast in, in the middle of our conversation. So um, I don't know. I think maybe that's like luck for women's health. Let's, let's, go, with, let's go with that. <laughs> Thank you all for being here.